Hello and welcome to We Came From The 80s, the podcast where we talk about movies again that we thought were cool. I'm your host, Farron, and I am joined again by a creepy lady who keeps asking me about the waters of her home world, even if it was edited out of this version, Heather. <laughs> Hello. Say uh, hi. <laughs> Say hi. <laughs> it's late, isn't it? <laughs> It's okay. It's, it's, it, it's Saturday night and we're tired and you have a kid. I'm totally keeping that in the podcast. So yeah, we are doing, well, Dune, the new one. And mostly we're doing it because I'm an idiot. Uh, it turns out, one second here, I should probably have looked this up. We did Dune. Oh, where is it now? Dune was episode 22 when we covered David Lynch's 1984 Dune. And that came out on November 2nd, 2018 so it's just over three years old which is a little shocking and i remember saying yeah denny villeneuve wants to make it but he's never gonna it's never gonna happen everyone impales themselves on on this movie well it turns out they did it <laughs> the, the movie actually came out and so it premiered in 2021 and I, i'm not giving a specific date because it's kind of complicated because it came out at the Cannes Film Festival whenever that was over the summer. And then it came out in Europe and Asia in September. And then it came out here October 8th or 9th or something like that. And at HBO Max at the same time. So it's kind of a mess. It's directed by Denis Villeneuve, who also did Sicario, which is an excellent film. Also includes Josh Brolin, by the way, who played Gurney Halleck. He did Blade Runner 2049. He did Arrival. So he does big movies and he has huge casts and he's a hell of a director. And it was written by Denny Villeneuve, John Spates and Eric Roth. And of course it's based on the novel Dune by Frank Herbert. And it stars Timothy Chalamet as Paul, Rebecca Ferguson as Jessica, Zendaya as Johnny, Oscar Isaac as Leto, Jason Momoa as Duncan, Stellan Skarsgård as the Baron, and Josh Brolin as Gurney Halleck. I never thought I'd be able to get away from imagining Patrick Stewart as Gurney Halleck, but Josh managed it. He nailed it. <laughs> he really did. He did a good job. I mean, they even added the poetry, and I'm a little disappointed that we didn't get any Balasset playing, but you had to go to the director's cut of the original Dune to see that. So to give you an idea on budgets, and, and, and to make it clear... This is only uh, this is actually called Dune Part One. It only covers about half the novel. So the other two covered the whole novel. So the David Lynch movie in '84 cost forty-five million dollars to make, and it made thirty-one million. So not great. The two thousand miniseries, which is six hours, cost twenty million, and I have no idea how much it made because it was TV. This had a budget of one hundred and sixty-five million dollars. Holy. And I couldn't tell you how much it's made, but it made enough that they've just announced that there there will, in fact, be a sequel. Denis Villeneuve has already said he envisions it as a trilogy, which means they'll do Dune Messiah, the second book, which is essentially the end of Paul. I mean, he's in Children of Dune, but only mm -hmm. kind of. You've, yeah. you've, read, you've read Children of Dune? I have not. Really? Okay. I've uh, only if, read the first one, and it was about mm -hmm. 300 years ago. Yeah, I read it in... Well, actually, 1989. It's funny. I, uh, I've given the book away like five times, and I bought another copy, and I, I kind of ran out of steam. And But yeah, it's... Well, Dune Messiah takes place 12 years later, and it follows sort of the fight between Chani and Irulan over who gets to bear the royal heir. Because the one thing none of the movie adaptations of Dune ever tell you, I mean, maybe this one will, 
is that Cheney and Paul had a kid named Leto II who died. He's killed by the Sardaukar. And then at the end of Dune Messiah, they have twins, again called Leto II and a girl named Ganema. Alia. Yes. Uh, oh. she, she becomes like Dune, like, uh, at the end of Dune Messiah, Paul walks off into the desert and, um, Alia becomes the regent and she goes fucking nuts, but she's convinced she's being haunted by the, the ghost of the Baron Harkonnen, who of course is her grandfather. And, you know, it's, it gets a little weird, but Dune Messiah essentially ends it for Paul who walks off into the desert to die. I'm curious to see how he pulls it off. He'll be able to pull that one off in one movie just because it's a much simpler book. It's essentially a murder mm-hmm. plot. Um, yeah, it, it, you know, where, where the, the, the princess Uralan, who of course marries Paul at the end of the first book, she, uh, uh, she conspires with the Bene Gesserit and the spacing guild to assassinate Paul and they don't quite manage it. And that goes badly for everyone. And anyway, (laughs) so (laughs) let's start off something simple. What did you think of this movie? I liked it. I could follow it. I enjoyed the effects. I enjoyed the writing, I enjoyed the casting. Um, I'm going to go reread Dune now because this movie was good. I have issues. I have questions. <laughs> but I liked it. Yeah. So, what is there anything specific that, like, if you had to look at the 84 version, which I know you enjoyed when we did it. If you had to look at the 84 version and you had to look at this one, what's one thing that you go, holy shit, they nailed it. And David Lynch did not. Is there any one thing that you look at and you just think this is a, a vastly superior or maybe inferior version? Um, well, for, for starters, did I enjoy the first one? I don't know. You tell me. I thought you did. No. Okay. No, oh. no the first one was terribly done. Okay. <laughs> so I, there you I, go. There's a... <laughs> At least in this one, Paul is believable as a teenager. That's true. Ironically, uh, Timothy Chalamet is like 25 now, so he would have been 23 when he filmed it. So, but yeah, he does uh, the the teenager thing. You know what it is? He's skinny. Yeah, he's he doesn't he's have got, his man's weight yet. Yeah. Whereas Kyle MacLachlan, who by the way was about the same age, he he had filled out. He did not look like a, a 15 year old or whatever he's supposed to be. Um, yeah, that, that definitely is, that's notable. <laughs> so, so anything overall you want to, um, as part of your overall review that you want to talk about or overall, I thought it was much better done, easier to follow, easier to understand way better effects, uh, much better casting. There, there were some things I think they did better in the old one though it's the litany against fear part but i think okay. you want to talk about that. yeah we're, I, th- we're, I think you want to talk about that so yeah we're definitely going to talk about the box scene one of the iconic scenes from the book and the movie so yeah okay so in my case i'm the same i i really 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 like this movie and i think almost everything is better than the lynch version the one thing i like more about the lynch version though is the music i thought toto's score was fabulous and it's interesting because there's a scene in this one when they put on their still suits and head out to the desert and the music for me was sort of a callback to, it, it felt like a callback to the Dune music from the original and maybe it's not, but it just, it triggered that feeling like, Oh, this is like the 84 Dune music, which was kind of cool. Just a few notes as they're facing towards the desert.
but overall, I really enjoyed it. I thought the casting was excellent. I'm not sure how I feel about Oscar Isaac, though, as Leto. Leto's a hard one to get a, a beat on because I don't think... I mean, John Hurt, who played him in the miniseries, I think he does the best job, even though he was the least appropriate actor. Because the one thing that the Lynch version and this version almost entirely miss is the love affair between Jessica and Lita. Like, how long do you go before there's any hint that Jessica's not his wife? Uh, right at the end, at night, just before the betrayal. Yeah. When he says, I should have married you. I should you. have married you, right. But the other two make a point of saying she is the bound concubine. That's one thing this, this movie kind of avoided, which bothered me, which is that half the characters you meet are in fact property. Thufur Howat and Piter DeVray's, the Mentats, and I got a whole thing to talk about with Piter in this one, their property, they were purchased from the Tlaxit. Dr. Wellington Yui, and they don't even give him a first name in this one, he is property of the, uh, you know, I don't doubt for a second they love the Duke because he's a good guy, but they're owned by him. And Jessica is property. And they sort of, you know, they leave that aside. And, you know, Duke Leto becomes very much a cipher in this one. I'm not sure how happy I am, but everyone else, like, I never thought I would imagine anyone other than Patrick Stewart as Gurney Halleck. But Josh Brolin manages it. Even They even gave him some of the poetry because that's the thing with, with um, Gurney Halleck, he's not just a weapons master. He's the he's like the court musician. He plays a ballast set. And there's a scene of that in the extended version of, of Lynch's Dune. But maybe there is a one here too with him jiving away at a ballast set. I don't know. I'm told there's a lot more that was filmed for this movie that didn't make it onto the screen. So I'm hoping there will be a director's cut. But overall, yeah, I, I enjoyed it. Like I said I preferred the, the Lynch music. I preferred... The box test more in the 84 version, which we'll get to. But overall, yeah, the effects are much better because the one thing with the Lynch version is he didn't seem to care what the special effects looked like. He, so he didn't put a lot of effort into them. So they look terrible, even for their day. Whereas these ones, it's almost to the point where I don't care about special effects anymore because it's so easy to do them well. Because there's, there's a whole industry out there, whereas in 1984, there really wasn't. There was ILM and that was it, you know? Mm. Whereas here, everyone does effects well. Like, so of course everything looks super realistic or okay, that's not the right term. Everything looks believable in this world. Like nothing looks out of place. Like when you see the harvester, it doesn't look like a model that David Lynch's kid put together using bottle caps. It looks like a piece of equipment. And when the carryall comes, it's weird and silly with the hot air balloon bullshit, but it looks reasonable. It looks like a real thing. The one example I give of special effects uh, that I can always give is the ornithopter. Do you remember what the ornithopter looked like in, in the 84 Dune? I'm not really, no. It was weird. And depending which which angle you looked at, it's like they used a different model and it never made sense. <laughs> and, it, and it wasn't an ornithopter. Orny meaning bird. Here they went with, well, a dragonfly. But it looked like an actual ornithopter. Like it's, you know, it has wings. That's how these things fly. Because um, they can't use it. Cool. Oh, it was gorgeous. And I like that, you know, different, you see Atreides ornithopters and you see the ones that Liet Kynes was using and they're all different models. They're all the same. And it's clear that they can operate all of them. It's the difference between driving a Ford, a Nissan and a, a Toyota. It's just a car, yeah. but they all look different. And I like that. So yeah, overall, I'm very, very happy. So you got, you took notes. So let's, let's see what you got. All right. So from the top. 
right. right from the intro. It was better. It was. Uh, it took them four minutes. I checked to introduce Arrakis, Spice, Spice Harvesting, the Harkonnens, and Desert Warfare in four minutes. Yeah. There was still a lot of exposition because there's. Yeah. You I can't mean, get away from that. You can't. They did skip the part about the robots are bad. I don't think that's ever mentioned in any of them. Like the computers, like the like, fact yeah. that they're no. Yeah, they don't mention that. I think a lot of people will be confused when it says the year is 10,191. 10, that's not AD. That's 10,191 years since the Butler and Jihad that eliminated computers. Yeah. But th- so it's like, like 20,000 years in the future. I thought it was I thought it was mentioned in the first essay in the uh, 84 version. No. It's been no. however long since the uprising? No. Uh, no. In fact, they don't mention I mean, there's that long 10-minute thing that someone put together and I think got tied into a fan edit, but no, the, the most they ever talk about is the Mentats are the thinking computers, but no version maybe, ever says why. Maybe it was you that, that told me that. Or the yeah, book. Because, well, yeah, because that's the idea, right? That it's, there was this, this religious, well, they call it the Butler and Jihad named after Gene Butler, who led uh, a religious revolt against AI computers. So now they develop the mind. That's what the Mentats are. Right, you know, you will know them by their red stained lip. They're they do the heavy lifting for computers, and the killed navigators do navigation computing, and a lot of the rest of it is done by by the Tlilaxu who make, among other things, Mentats, and done by the Bene Gesserit, and you know, like there are there's all these things that replace computers, but I don't think anyone has ever said why in any of the versions. Oh, I just so. I just knew it was in my brain. It must have been you or the book that told me. It. Yeah, this is the problem that we, you and I had to whisper in Raimi's ear for two and a half hours. Yeah, and that's the other thing I noticed. I, I watched this one with my husband, and he has never read the book. He made it about 14 seconds into the 1984 version before he left, and he watched this. Yeah. Did he, did he get it? Ish. Yeah. But, um, as, as, as far as he gets any science fiction space movie. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I had this conversation that's, with yeah. someone. Like, that's what he called it. It's a science fiction space movie. Like, yeah, like, this is not Star Wars or Star Trek. Like, those are very good. Don't get me wrong. I mean, Star Wars is as much fantasy as anything. But this is what a lot of real science fiction is. It's complicated, and it's freaking weird. And you have to think and think and think. It's not, it's, it's not Hollywood science fiction. That's why I still maintain the movie's unfilmable. Even after this valiant attempt, I still think the book's unfilmable. Because there's so much they leave out. They have no choice. Yeah. But. And that, that that may be part of what I find missing is that it's becoming a science fiction space movie a little bit. Well, I think he wanted to introduce serious ideas, and he does in a way that only the, uh, that not even the 2000 miniseries really did an especially good job of. You know, the idea of these people believe what they believe because they were told to believe it, not because it's true. You know, the idea that these ideas of uh, the voice from the outer world and the Messiah, that's all planted. And Paul recognizes this, but so many of the ideas just get washed away. One day, 15 years from now, HBO is going to say, let's remake this as like a 10 episode season. And they'll do like three seasons. So like 30 episodes of Dune. And maybe, maybe they explain half of what's in the book because there's so much. Except it'll get cancelled after the first season. Yeah, that's, that's right. true. Anyway, the other thing I appreciated was that it was balanced better. There's a balance between Paul and Johnny. 
there's a balance between their stories at the at the beginning. There's a balance between lecturing and showing. And even when even when Paul is in his room studying the tablets and the recordings, mm-hmm. they're still showing. And he yes. and he finds the little mouse thing in the video. The desert yeah. the desert mouse and the Muadib. Um, it's called a Muadib. Yeah, I remember. Because that's well, because that's what Paul chooses. That's how he gets his name, name, yeah. Yeah. You know, that was one of the greatest details when you see the mouse and how it collects water. It's big ears. Yeah. That's how it collects water and he drinks it. That was such an immense attention to detail. My God, who told Denis Villeneuve to include that? Or was it his own idea? Like, Or did someone point it out to him? The one thing we talked about when we did the 84 version is that Lynch, by his own admission, did not understand the book. And, and that's very clear. He didn't understand the book because he thought it was a white savior movie. And it's really not. Denis Villeneuve understood it's not. Danny Villeneuve understood that Paul is not the good guy. He's the protagonist, but he is so far from the good good guy. guy. Yeah. But they show you that. You're right. Like they communication. They did such a good job of telling the story by showing it to you, but not drowning you with princess. I mean, look, you know, David Lynch got it right. That princess Irulan narrates the book. Remember every chapter starts with an excerpt from books. She wrote about her, her husband and that's part of these books. Like one of the best descriptions of the book I ever heard was there's a guy out there. His name is um, Jeet Har. I think his name is. He's a is the editor for the New Republic. It's the uh, in-flight magazine, among other things, of Air Force One. Um, it's a serious political thing. And he loves Dune. So he has a podcast and they spent a lot of time talking about it with a guy who's just totally into Dune. And they said the book is weird because it's written like a holy text. Like this book was written for kids to read about the late great emperor Paul. And so it's stilted and it's weird and Paul never gets anything wrong and he's super clever. And so it's, you're not reading a fiction. You're not reading a fiction book from 1965. You're reading a religious text from, you know, 25,000 years in the future sort of thing. And so it, it doesn't have to be chill it can be didactic. It can lecture you, but Denny Villeneuve finds a way to lecture you and still make these people seem relatable yes. and, and to tell you a story that you want to hear instead of creepy chick fading in and out of the screen. And, Oh yes, I forgot to tell you, you know, <laughs> Oh, I hated her. Um, <laughs> I want to see this one again. There's something, there's some s- scenes I want to see again. Um, okay. Like when, when the handover is happening and it, and there's hesitation with the seal and yep. they're cutting back and forth between the Duke and the, and the Bene Gesserit. Yeah. Something's going on there. And I didn't catch it. So I want to, I want to watch it again. Yeah. See, that's not in the book. The seal is like the, uh, remember the book starts with the box. Castle Caliban is being packed up and, and it's already done. But I like this because at no point do they say what the other two versions point out, which is in the book, which is, the Atreides know this is a trap and they're almost certain the emperor is behind it and they know why. And that's almost not explained at all in this one. So this is a way to show that, but I think it's done poorly. Like there's dialogue oh. missing. No, I, I don't picked like it up right away. I've found it but, much easier to understand in this one. That, that, the it emperor was a, was sit- that it was a trap from the emperor and, and the Atreides knew what was going on. And it's interesting. I found they didn't, they didn't um, communicate, but maybe it's just me and me. I need to watch it again. It's off-putting because, you know, having seen the movie a zillion times and read the book, and I know the book really well, 
scenes that aren't in there bother me. And so maybe I'm not approaching them the way I should sort of like the scene on Solissa Secundus with the Sardaukar, which has become a meme already with the throat singing, uh, which yeah. we're going to talk about because I love it. It's a great scene. <laughs> you know, it's so goofy. Oh, but it, it's hilarious. I'm starting a Sardaukar throat singing cover band, but we're only going to do children's songs. The wheels on the bus go round and round. <laughs> I'll be, I'll be okay. Someone already made, they took the 30 second clip of the sound and they made an hour long version of it so they could like play in their office. It's up on YouTube. Another guy did the Sardaukar rave where the guy standing <laughs> on the pillar, moving his hands and chanting is spinning glow sticks. And there's like flashing lights and lasers. And the Sardaukar kept kneeling and standing and kneeling and standing because they're bopping to the music. <laughs> awesome. It's hilarious. Just type in Sardaukar rave. It's, it's so funny. You know, it became a meme almost immediately. It's really quite funny. Where were we going with this? <laughs> um, oh, yeah, the handover scene. Yeah, it was neat to show, like, sort of the officialness of it and how, like, it's clear that Leto Atreides is, like, this super loyal guy because he is. That's what he's sort of known for. But I felt they never really get around to explaining why the Emperor wants to wipe out the house. Like, we know, I mean, they don't even really tell you why the Harkonnens want to do it. It's one sentence. If you if you cough, you miss it. They're They're too powerful. And that's the thing, though, is that they're not a powerful house. It's that he's popular in the lands drought, like the House of Lords. And he here's the thing. He's like super loyal to his cousin, the emperor. But the emperor, Shaddam IV, who wasn't supposed to take the throne but got stuck with it, he's paranoid. He assumes everyone want, is out to get him. So he sees some guy who's super popular and thinks he's going to make a play for the throne. And so he goes to the Harkonnens, who've been in a blood feud for like a thousand years with the Atreides, and they set him up. So the Harkonnens don't give a shit. They just want they just want to kill. They want to wipe out the family because it's an old grudge. They're happy to help the emperor and let the emperor pay for it with soldiers and cash. But they never really explain other than the uh, the emperor is a jealous man. That's all they really say. That's true. They don't they don't go into that kind of detail. And then later we learn that yeah the emperor is behind it because Liet Kynes, who is here gender switch and by the way she's probably my favorite character in the film. She did a fabulous job. Oh, um, she was great. Yeah. The Imperial Planetologist. Uh, I mean, look, Max von Sydow did a wonderful job. The guy from the miniseries was just creepy. But, uh, you know, she does an amazing job. And she says, I can't report. I've been ordered to remain silent. She knew all this time it was a setup, which is unfortunate because, of course, the whole idea was she didn't know. So what else you got there? So you, you, you said the music was better in the old one. And I have to agree because I... If, if you had asked me if there was music in this one, I would have gone, I don't know, probably. Yeah. Um, the one piece of music that it, it's Hans Zimmer and his scores are always underscored. He did like uh, Crimson Tide, which was very good music, but he also did the, the Batman trilogy with Christian Bale. And his music is very generic. The only piece of music you ever hear is the one with the woman's voice. And they just lay that shit on so thick. And it's not even very good. It was used in the second trailer. I don't think it fits the feeling of the film, but whatever they used it. But what Denny Villeneuve does really well isn't so much music, it's sound. He uses sound, like the voice, like the first time you hear uh, the voice is when Paul uses it at the uh, the breakfast table, which is not a scene in the movie, but does a good job of communicating that Paul has been trained in the weirding way, the way of the witches, the way of the Bene Gesserit. When he uses the voice, remember there's that delay, he says it and it's muffled and then you hear the voice? Mm. Like it, The sound was excellent. Yeah. Like it confuses you. He uses sound the way some directors use visuals to confuse you. And it works 
so well. Like, especially the use of the voice in the 1984 version, it's just, no, come here. Like, she sounds like this, this scary thing from a Halloween movie. But in this one, it's jarring. <laughs> and it's just a lot of directors, you can always tell when a director doesn't understand how to use the camera because it's boring to look at or doesn't know how to use act it doesn't even know how to use blocking so everything is you know the camera is straight on and people move back and forth in front of the screen and it's clear when someone doesn't know how to use sound because the sound is mediocre he knows how to use all these things but because so few directors know how to use sound well it stands out when someone does it super well and here it's awesome very good yeah yeah i love the helicopters the ornithopters the, yeah they're super oh cool. man they're they're my favorite i need one um <laughs> uh, i only have two points left one it. of them is I had a really hard time comparing this movie to the 84 one. This is most of the time in the 84 one. I had no fucking idea what was going on. Really? If, if, if I hadn't had read the book and if I hadn't seen it as a young child with my mom in the room mm -hmm. telling me what was going on, um, I would have had no clue at all what was going on. Even Even when we watched it three years ago as crazy as that is and it's funny because i have i've never had any trouble following it and maybe it's just the way my brain works maybe i'm a mutant maybe i'm the quizat satirac i don't know um uh, I, I promise not to lead a holy war well i can't really promise that but i promise i'll spare you um thank you but i i, I don't know and every i never had trouble but you know roger ebert had the same problem he says i don't know what's going on but I, but I found that not only did I know what was going on, I wish they would stop fucking telling me what's going on. Because remember, we noticed that, that in the first 20 minutes of the film, they would tell us what's going on, show us more, tell us again, and then tell us a little more, then show us. And then, like, it was almost like an army lecture. Here's what I'm going to yeah. tell you. Now I'm going to tell you, and here's what I told you. And after a while, it's like, stop telling me. Whereas here, I found they just showed you. Which is what a movie's supposed to do. Yeah, yeah. It's, oh. it's a different approach but then it also leaves out a lot there's a lot that just you'll never yeah. know you know yeah and and really my last point that i wrote down it's a, it's an hour longer and it only covered like two-thirds of the book well they're both two hours and a half are they well i think i think the first one's two i think uh lynch's was two 219 and this one's like 229 or something <laughs> they are effectively th the same length oh see i thought um, uh, i thought the 84 one was Standard 1980s length, uh, just over two hours, I think. Not much. I mean, maybe this one maybe yeah. a little longer, but still, yeah, it's like it's only half the film or half the book, and that gave everything time to breathe. I found this just so much easier to watch, and that's what I'm hearing from everyone. You know, Doctor Stephen Novella, who's the, among other things, the host of the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, one of the, I think, my favorite podcast. He said that the one thing the '84 film gets right is an analog world and he's right he he gets it right it's a world without thinking computers everything's mechanical and i don't think this film gets that quite right and i don't think i mean it's still beautiful and i i like it and the 2000 miniseries does not get right at all is that this is a world without thinking computers but then no, no one ever talks about why so you sort of go okay whatever so it is easier to watch because the visual language of movies is just so much better and here's what here's what uh, Denny Villeneuve is not doing. He's not trying to make it a Denny Villeneuve, Denny Villeneuve film. He's just trying to make a good movie. David Lynch was making a David Lynch film. He was trying to establish his 
his his bona fides as a freaky deaky filmmaker and he was just off of the the success of the elephant man and ironically he was given a choice between dune and return of the jedi and i think star wars would have collapsed as a franchise had they given return of the jedi to him so i'm good uh i'm, I'm glad that uh, frank herbert took one for the team <laughs> on that one um <laughs> so i i owe that guy a beer because yeah I'm, uh, I'm glad it wasn't star wars Denis Villeneuve just makes a good film. Like he, like yeah, you could always tell when it's his film because he's so good at visual story making. But he doesn't have like the Denis Villeneuve style. He's not like Tim Burton or David Lynch. Like this is my movie done my way, and you'll know it's my movie. No, Denis Villeneuve just makes a really good movie. Um, yeah. Like there's certain things he does well, like scale. He loves showing big things and showing you how big they are. He doesn't have a freaky style. He just has a, like he's just a really good filmmaker, and and yes. it shows. Um, His style is that it's awesome. And yeah, he was an excellent choice for this, and it helps that he clearly understood the book, or was you know either he got it himself, or the writers helped him. One or the other, you know. Yes, somebody really knew it. Yeah, but there's a few things like like actually let's start first with some of the things that he got right that. A lot of the critics didn't. I've heard this a lot from critics over the years. And of course, now it's trendy in that people say, well, you shouldn't read this book or watch this movie because it's about a white savior saving Arabs. And when I hear someone say that, my first response is, okay, you've either not read the book or seen the movie, or more likely you did one of those things and you didn't really pay attention because he is so not a white savior. He is so not. He's he's a monster. I mean, here he's he's a nice kid here, sort of, but the one thing this movie does brilliantly is that it shows you what the future is. Like the book, if you remember, he's haunted by these visions of this angry religious army marching through the universe with the Atreides banner flying overhead. And they show you that scene. Remember all of them standing on the shoreline cheering and him dressed in black with Chaney looking down? Like it doesn't do an especially good job, but... He actually at one point says it when they're in that, when they're hiding in that tent that he recognizes he's going to lead a religious jihad across the galaxy and he's going to spill the blood of millions and he doesn't know how to stop it. And all these visions he has shown, they're all the paths he, he can take but doesn't. Like, remember he has visions of Jamis, the, uh, the black Fremen, being his friend and showing him how the world works, but then he kills Jamis. He doesn't him. find it. He, he doesn't find a way to make that better. And he sees Chani stabbing him. And that's a way out. Like, there's all these ways out for him. And this is, of course, this is one of the big, this becomes a huge part of the theme in the fourth book, God Emperor of Dune, which is about his son. The idea of the, let's back up here. The idea of the Kwisatz Haderach, which they do a shit job of explaining in this movie. The Kwisatz Haderach, right? Bene Gesserit can predict the future because they've honed their mind. The problem is, is that this is a patriarchal culture, which means they can't predict the future from a male point of view because they're women. So they're trying to produce a male who can do it. And there's been a fuck up because Jessica was supposed to produce a daughter who would be married to Fade, uh, who's Baron Vladimir's nephew. And they would produce the Kwisatz Haderach, but she loves Leto so much and having a son meant a lot to him. So she pumps out Paul and now the Kwisatz Haderach has come uh, a generation early and he's not controllable. But he can do what they can do. He can predict the future. Now, everyone, because it's a culture that's very superstitious, they think he can literally see into the future. But of course, we know that's not it. It's that he is so good at pattern recognition that he can predict the future. So this whole book is about him having these visions of how horrible his future is. 
and he can't seem to get himself off the path. And eventually, this is the tragedy. Paul knows what he has to do to stop this horrible, blood-soaked future from happening. And of course, in the, you know, in the beginning, he doesn't really understand it. It's not until he arrives on Arrakis that he gets what's going on. But he keeps making the wrong decision. He, every time he, he makes, it's like every time his, his analytical mind shows him the way to avoid that bloody future, he goes in the other direction. And it frustrates him because as soon as he arrives, he hears them chanting whatever it is in Fremen, the, the voice from the outer world, the Messiah, and that they have a, 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 they have a myth about a woman will come with the sun. And they actually say it. Well, the Bene Gesserit have been at work here. They have planted these seeds. The Bene Gesserit have done that all over the galaxy so that if a Bene Gesserit is trapped on a planet, she's untouchable because all the local religions recognize that she's important and they won't touch her. And that happens, remember at the end of this film? Remember once... Stilgar recognizes that she's a Bene Gesserit. He says, she is a Sayadina. It's just their word for Bene Gesserit. She can't be touched. Even if, I don't know, Paul had, had died in his sleep or been crushed by a piano the night before, she still would have been safe with the Fremen, right? This is all a setup. And, and Paul is, remember, he's, remember how disgusted he is by it? Yeah. They believe what they've been told. So this movie does a wonderful job of communicating that, that, this guy has a path and he's very scared of it as he should be, but more and more he's embracing it until there comes a point when he's got that ducal signet ring in his hand, which is a scene I'm really upset about, by the way, uh, you know, because it's divided up with the tooth scene. He realizes now he has the power and he commits to the bloody path. Like he embraces it because now he wants revenge on the Harkonnens and he's willing to destroy the universe to do it, which is pretty much what he does. So that's sort of highfalutin. Let's talk about a scene that I know bothered you as much as it bothered me, which is the box. Yeah. So what is it that bothered you about the box? I'll let you go first. It was fine. You walked in. It was fine. Put your hand in the box. Fine. The Bene Gesserit mother says the words. Fine. She's got the thing. Fine. Dr. Bar, yeah. Yeah. And then the test starts. And Paul starts to fail. And his mom outside the door somehow holds him up. And shh, the litany against fear is hers, not his. Yeah. And that, that pissed me off. Yeah. I don't think she's like psychically reaching through the door. I think it's, she's trying to calm herself down, but yeah, they never explain the, the like they, at the end of it, they explain why it is that you've done the test. But the one thing the others do is explain, you're going to feel pain here. You just look and go, oh, he's, he's in pain. Why is he in pain? She says, um, he, she says there's pain. He says what's in the box and she says pain. That's Not, right, but does it's, she? It's, yeah, she does. She says that's, but that's all. Um, yeah, but I, I found it wasn't explained as well that, no. like, and he, by the way, you're right. He starts to fail the test. He starts to whine and lean away from the, the Gom Jabbar and the whole nine yards. And he starts to cry. The whole point of the scene is that even at this age, he's been told the, vit the litany against fear. Having her say it, like, it's fine that she says it. If the two of them had said it and it had gone back and forth, then we'd say, okay, he learned it from his mom. Cool. But instead, Great. he sits there and whines and cries and pulls away from the Gom Jabbar. At the end of it, he backs away suddenly in fear, which shows me that Paul in this movie didn't understand the purpose of the test. Whereas in the other two, the whole point was he stayed there. He pulled out the hand. He understood why the test had been given and he knew he wasn't in danger. So he didn't move. Whereas this one backs off like he doesn't yet get it. 
And I think this scene robbed him of his agency, robbed him of his power and made him too much of a kid. Yeah. You know, wasn't right. It wasn't done right. Yeah. The art direction is beautiful. I thought the Reverend mother was great. Uh, I like the one from the 84 version, but she always seemed like this badass bitch who would kick your ass if you did something wrong. Whereas this one, you get the impression that her power isn't that she can tear your throat out. Her power is that she can say the right thing to destroy you. Like she's all about what she represents. Whereas the one from the 84 version, she's a scary witch with a scary voice. I get get the same Uh, impression. I'm not sure which one of them I like better though, because I don't know, maybe it's just because I'm so used to the 84 film, but I like the voice here better. It sounds better in the 84 version because it's so scary, but in this one, it sounds more like what it would be, which is just this weird voice with the right tones that makes you, you know, make, make men do what you want with this one weird trick. You know, it's, (laughs) you know, it's all about control. Paul is being trained to do things that only women can do in this book. And a lot of it he does naturally. Like, he's a Mentat, naturally. But I don't think any three versions of the film talk about that. In fact, the Mentats get screwed over in this film altogether, which is something I think we should talk about, which is that Piter is erased as a character. Yeah, he's missing. I mean, he's there, but he might as well not be. Well, he's in, like, one scene, and he walks through it, right? Well, he's in a few... Like, he is actually in a few scenes. He's in the, he's in the scene that is not in the, in the book, which is where... The Reverend Mother Helen Gaius Maham talks to Vladimir uh, Harkonnen and says, don't kill Paul or Jessica, and he agrees not to. That's not even in there, and that's a whole other thing we're going to talk about. I'm pissed about that, that whole collection of scenes. He's also in the Sardaukar scene, which is also part of what I'm pissed off about, as much as I like it. Um, the scene in the, that the other two do very well, the other two versions do very well, is where we first meet the Baron, and we meet his twisted mentat, Peter de Vries. He's twisted because he was ordered that way. Right. Vladimir Harkonnen ordered a mentat who was a rapist and was addicted to spice. That's why he's called a twisted mentat because he's impure. And that's what Piter is. By not having the scene where they argue over whose idea the plan was to turn Dr. Yui, the imperial conditioned doctor who cannot be turned because he's from the imperial souk school. It's a big deal that he's been turned and Piter did it. But they never talk about that. And that the emperor is helping him, but that's never talked about. Like, it's a great scene that the original, you know, and we learn all about the Baron and we learn all about angry Raban and slick fade. Who's not in this movie at all. Fade, fade Routh, played by sting in the original is just not here. And all of that is meant to show you that these Royals are only, only as smart as their mentats are. And so the evil that Piter represents He's, he's behind so much of this and it's all just gone. He's reduced to a messenger. Like there's the scene on Seleucus Secundus, which is the proper name for the planet where the emperor's army, the Sardaukar are trained and it's a cool looking scene and the throat singing makes no sense, but it's so cool. But that's all we, all we learn about this. All we learn is this is what the Sardaukar look like. So you'll recognize the difference between them and the Harkonnen troops. And Piter gets to be a messenger. And the scene where he and the Baron talk to Helen Gaius Moham, that's in there too. Those are replacements for the scene I just talked about of them sitting around the room talking about the plan. So we get two scenes that don't accomplish what the scene they replace accomplishes. And they erase a character, Piter DeVries. I found that very disappointing. Yeah. 
We never understood why it's a big deal that Dr. Yue betrays people. But the whole point of the Souk doctors, the reason they're purchased for royal families, is that they're unturnable. That's the point. You can trust him with Paul because he couldn't possibly betray you. That's why they get the diamond mark on their forehead. It's the symbol of their uncorruptibleness, which isn't a word, but okay. And it's just, oh, you know, they threatened him with his wife's life. Okay, he'll go and betray everything he knows. They left out all the nuance. Yeah, and, and I was very disappointed by that. Now, I get it. They looked at it and said, okay, we got two and a half hours to tell the House Atreides side of this story, not the Paul Muad'Dib side, the House Atreides. And he probably said, what's important? Well, the important thing is the religious groundwork that's laid and Paul, how he interfaces with that. And it's important that we see the fall of House Atreides through this series of increasingly worse omens, the arrival of the emperor's emissary with the scroll and the assassination attempt at the hunter seeker which i thought was fine i, I like that, that he cool. he hides in the holographic uh plant that was uh, that was cool unnecessary but cool i like how they add those things and then there's you know the the scene with the carryall which i thought was fairly well done though having the carryall simply malfunction misses the point that the reason that scene happens is the carryall was shot down by the harkonnens because they're still on the planet but that's a yeah whatever that's fine but I kind of liked at the beginning how Cheney's narration was. And then one day, by imperial decree, they were just gone. That was cool. Because it creates a mystery. Here are the Harkonnens assembling on the field to march off. So I'm okay with that. But this movie could have been seven hours long and still not do the first half of the book justice. And what I'm finding, the more I watch adaptations of Dune, now there are three, four, if you include the Children of Dune miniseries, which covered books two and three, um, which are very good. These are not adaptations of Dune. They're movies about Dune. Yeah. Let's, they're not, they're not yeah. telling the story. They're telling you about the story. Like they're dipping you in and out. Well, let's show you this scene. And oh, this scene's happening. Let's peek in on that. What are they up to? Because there's, there's too much. You know, Denis Villeneuve has done the best job of all three attempts. John Harrison, the 2000 miniseries, and, and David Lynch with the Clusterfuck 84 version. He's done the best version by far. But it's still... I think it's a swing and a miss. I hate to say it as much as I love this movie and as much as he did so much a better job, there's just so much he left out. And some of those were choices and some of those he had no choice. But this is the only one that made me want to read the book. Yes. And that's why it's a success. Because it makes you want to know. As good as this movie is, and it's a great film, and it's going to win all sorts of Academy Awards because it's well-written, it's well-acted, it's well-filmed, everything's good about it. It's made for science fiction fans, not Hollywood science fiction fans, people who read science fiction. And I wonder how many people are looking at this and going, I don't understand this. But I hear over and over again from podcasts and people I, I, I see online, oh man, I got to go and read this book now, don't I? And, and see, that's part of why I watched it with my husband. He is not a science fiction guy. He's, yeah. he's not a nerd. He, he's, he's a sports guy. He, yeah. he, knows, he knows sports ball stats. And there, there was enough to hold him. Like there yeah. were enough explosions, or or whatever he was looking for. Mm -hmm. um, he, he made it through without asking questions. You know why? Because they, ironically, is because they don't stop to explain everything. The '84 version, as we've said, explains to the point where you just like, please, just show me some action. I'm begging of you. Stop looking to the screen and tell me shit. The '80, uh, the, the 2000 miniseries did a did a better job of it, but it's still tries to explain everything. Denny Villeneuve didn't try. 
there is no explanation about the Sardaukar throat singing, which is totally made up, or the fact that they're, you know, they've got these sacrificial dudes and they're painting the, the troops with their blood on the face. And none of that makes any sense. And it's not meant to. You're meant to look at this and go, this is a different culture. What do I need to know about this scene? The emperor is committed his troops to the fight. And they're definitely not the Urukai. Yeah, no. Um, that's, the last, that's the last group on, of warriors with the face painting. And maybe that's what he was going for, but I liked it. I like the idea that they have their own thing going. You know, one thing I will say is that it really got warfare in this world, but, but they don't explain it. They get it, but they don't explain it. One line. The slow blade penetrates the shield. But they never explain why that's a big deal. Slow means lower energy. Something that's high energy, like a bullet, just bounces off the shield because it reflects the energy back. That's why laser guns, which is what they call lasers, that's why you don't use a laser gun against a shield because it pushes back so much energy. You get a thermonuclear explosion. Well, two of them. You get one with the dude at the shield and one with the guy who fired the gun. So, you know, they're <laughs> don't not used. Do that. Don't do that. Yeah. So everyone. So there are no battles with bullets. Um, the one projectile that's used on someone with a shield is the dart used uh, against Leto. And if you see, that has to work away at the shield to pass its way through. So the battles here, the fight in the in the castle where the Atreides have taken up uh, living in Arakeen is really cool. There's these, you know, groups of troops marching. And the Atreides, you know, they have spears and, and it's very medieval. And it's become that way because... Technology is kind of at a standstill. Blaze guns are ineffective and they're they're kind of touchy and they don't always work, as they point out in the book. Projectiles don't work. Everyone has personal shields, which means you got to get in there with the blade. And it's not enough to be the fastest. In fact, that's a bad idea. <laughs> you know, it's who's the best. And those battles are amazing. And if you notice, no one runs. The Harkonnen and Sardaukar troops walk. In waves. There are exceptions. Like remember, Jamis has a projectile gun that Paul takes from him. And there is the laser gun you see twice. Once when they try to knock uh, Duncan Idaho's ornithopter out of the air, remember? Mm -hmm. And then once in the, the old water trap facility where they try and cut through a door with a handheld laser. It's actually a realistic laser, which is it's not a pew-pew laser. It's a steady stream that cuts through everything. They really got the warfare in this, and I appreciated that. But they never explain why it's a thing. Why is yeah. everyone using swords? It's the thing with this movie. It gets it, and yet it doesn't explain it. So if you know if you know the book, you know, oh, yeah, he gets that. Cool. But if you don't read the book, you're going, what the fuck am I watching here? Like, they never explain what the Mentats are. You know there's something weird. Because remember, did you notice Thufur with the yeah, eyes? Yeah, the eye was cool. Yeah. And, and then... Uh, uh, Peter did it, like, once for, like, a millisecond. In, uh, yeah, in the, in the Sardaukar scene. And did yeah. you notice about his eyes? They aren't uh, synchronized. They didn't match. Was yeah, it, they didn't that, match. Is that because of the space addiction, maybe? I, that's the only, that's purely, the, the whole eye rolling thing, that's Denny Villeneuve 100%, but that's fine because it's a visual representation, and I think that's his only hint that Piter is a twisted mentat, that he's not well. His eyes don't, like, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's interesting, but again, Unless you've read the book and go, oh, right, that's how Danny Villeneuve is showing that it's uh, that he's a twisted mentat. But on everyone else, you're going, like, if you notice it at all, and you might, but you might not. But you like know. you said, if you and I knew who he was, because we knew who he was. Yeah. I'll give you, I'll, I'll bet you anything. Um, probably didn't even notice him. He probably thought he was a messenger or somebody holding, yeah. holding, the, holding, the, um, holding the lady's coat. 
Yeah, yeah, and it's funny. I was about to say if you if you open your door and called out to your husband and said, "Hey, who was uh, who was Piter? Who?" Yeah. Um, one thing that did piss me off is they're not good at enunciating names. I tried watching The Witcher, you know that TV show based on the games and the books. I tried yeah. watching it a couple. I, I hated it, um, and I'll tell you why. Because I couldn't name you one place they were going because they mumbled all the fucking names. Well, I'm from the town that. What was that? Oh, you're from and after a while, I got sick of trying to figure out where the fuck everything was. Because they did such a bad job of enunciating, and it's the same thing here. When they land on Arrakis and Paul runs up to Thufir Hawat, he doesn't go, hello, Thufir. It's, hey, Thufir Hawat. So that's his name, Thufir Hawat. One word. Yeah. And it's like, if you don't give a shit what their name is, don't give them a name. But that's a problem all on its own. And like it's, it's not as bad as the 2000 miniseries, which was filmed in Europe. And so you have all these actors from all over Europe with all these funky accents for whom English is, I promise you, not a first language. And so... Everyone, everyone speaks weirdly, and it, it, so you get the Atreides and, uh, you know, the Harkonnens or the Harkonnens, which is it? Everyone pronounces it differently. It's super weird because the, you know, the emperor in the 2000 version, he was an Italian actor, and the guy playing Liet Kynes, I think, was from, like, Croatia. So you get all these accents, and they're all trying to make their own weird space accents. And so everything's <laughs> already fucked up. Here... They didn't do any of that. Everyone, I think, has a North American accent. I don't think it was a British accent of the bunch. Um, Stellan Skarsgård is... Uh... Yeah, but he he just... He has that mumbling... Like He's the closest thing to an accent, but everyone used a North American accent. That's what I mean. Yeah. And yet they mumble the names. Thufir Howitt. Who? Thufir Howitt. I find that very frustrating. Because when I don't know what to call something, I don't care about it as much. Mm-hmm. And so not only do we not know that he's a Mentat, other than if you happen to know what he is, you notice he's got the red the red yep. tattoo and Piter has the, the red tattoo. If you don't notice that because there's so much going on, you might not say, oh, these two are the same, but what are they? You know what I mean? Like, because there's no, there's no explanation. And things like that, Again, it's, do you remember the scene from the book? They have this huge banquet, a party and a banquet, and there are water sellers there, and Liet Kynes is there, and there are representatives from other houses, and do you remember that? It's a really good scene because it sort of discusses what the state of Arrakis is, and we meet the family because, of course, the place where the Atreides take up residence, which no one ever talks about in any of them, isn't the capital of Arrakis. The capital of Arrakis is another town. They purposely choose Arakeen because it's an out-of-the-way town, and this house belonged to a noble family that happened to live on Arrakis. And Leto chose it as his headquarters because he didn't dare take over the Harkonnen base. That was just... You, know, you don't you don't move into the bear's cave, even if you're pretty sure the bear moved out. And so that family is there, and they they very much love the Atreides and all of that. He filmed that scene, apparently. And I'm hoping that and a lot of other little scenes find their way back into this movie. Like, this movie begs to be three hours long. Yeah. Because it's like he filmed everything and explained very little. And you wonder how many of the explanations just found their way onto the floor, onto the cutting room floor. Having said that, I adore this film. I love it, love it, love it. And I'm buying it as soon as it comes out. And when they come out with the director's copy 20 days later, I'll buy that one too, I'm sure. I'm probably going to watch it a third or fourth time. 
fifth, sixth, seventh, 155th. I'm going to watch it a bunch of times. And you've already said you want to read the book again. You want to watch it again. Yep. Um, and chances are high we're going to do this again when the sequel comes out. Yeah. Which I've, I took as very good news, in fact. Uh, they're filming. They're starting to film next year. I'm very pleased they made this movie. I'm yeah. pleased I'm, I was wrong. So, so am I, actually. It doesn't happen often, but I'm glad you were this time. And it, I, all... I still need a chance to, to see the worms. That's what I was most excited about, about the 84 one. It's the only part I liked was the worms, except for the, yeah. go except for the goofy green screen writing. But, but the power just... guitar in the background was hilarious. Oh. and It was awesome. But I didn't mind that. I liked it. That's so 1980s. The teasers of the worms in this one, they're... Come on, but I you, was... But you see the worm. Remember, the, there's the scene it, where they run. They make the run the for end, it. Yeah. Um, I love that because... But but if you think about it, it's true in the in the eighty four version too. You never fully see and understand the nature of the sandworms until they make a run for it in the desert. Yeah, you know Lynch and Denis Villeneuve both learned from Steven Spielberg and Jaws, which is sometimes it's better not to show. Remember the deal that Spielberg made is okay, I'll do Jaws, but only if I can't show the shark the shark for the first hour. Sometimes not showing like. They did an even better job with this one when he eats the carryall. You don't see much of anything. Just teeth. Just teeth. Yeah. I, I There's things it does very well. Oh, and one thing I want to mention. I love how disjointed his cultural theft is. Like the throat, <laughs> the throat singing from Tibet and the steppes of Russia and all that. The Sardar car using it. Why? It's 20,000 years in the future. What the fuck? It doesn't matter. They're using it. And the Atreides, they use bagpipes. Excuse me? 20,000 years in the future, there are Scottish bagpipes, and it makes no sense until you realize that they're 20,000 years in the future. Earth is a myth to these people. They've taken whatever bits of old culture and have adapted it. That's super cool. Like, this is a culture that's so alien that the little bits they've taken show up in weird, unexpected places. The fact that Gurney Halleck, which isn't in the movie, plays a balisette. That is a medieval instrument. Who the hell uses a balisette anymore? We use a guitar. So it's just neat that these things sort of appear randomly and you go, okay, it's just part of their culture. The Atreides use, of all things, Scottish bagpipes. Because why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you? And, and it's so cool. It's it's sort of like the, the throat singing or the weird headdresses that the Bene Gesserit have. Why do they use them? I don't know. Are you going to tell us? No, that's just part of the culture. Get used to it. This is 20,000 years in the future. So just run with it, man. And it's cool. Like, it's just that he just decided, I'm going to present you with a culture that is so far removed from yours. They don't even, they're not even sure whether earth is a real place anymore. That's how far it is. So, and, and he just, it's so cool. You know, and, 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 and like, why does lady Jessica wear that? cool looking dress and veil when she arrives on Arrakis. Shouldn't she be armored? No, she's in that. Why? Why not? They never well, explain it because she is. And it's fucking awesome. You know, there's so many things like that that are cool and things they don't explain. And I love it. And one last thing, Stilgar is fucking awesome. He's such, he's, he's not arrogant. He just doesn't give a shit. You know, like, I got to go now. We Stay, we'll honor you. Yeah, my honor requires me to be elsewhere. We're, we're done. To, like I says, I'm done talking to you. Like, he's faced with a duke. And he's been literally threatened with, like, I'm going to stab you if you don't treat him with deference. Yeah, whatever. I'm done talking yeah. to you now. I'm leaving. I love Bye. it. Like, he's just so unimpressed. 
And I think that's cool. And, you know, and taking it back, let's sort of loop it around to where you started. You loved how they, the dichotomy between uh, Chani and Paul, her intro is based on the fact that she knows nothing about the desert. She doesn't know about politics. She wonders who her next oppressor is going to be, because that's all she knows. Because it's a Fremen point of view that no other film ever gives. And not even the book, by the way, gives. The books never really give things from a Fremen point of view until they're explaining it to Paul over and over and over again. But here, the first thing we learn is from the natives' point of view. This is my world. It's sand and spice, and it's beautiful, and I love it. It's all I've ever known. And these terrible people come from another world, and they are nothing but a blight on us. And they're gone, and we're not happy because we wonder who the next monster to come down the line is. I love it. This was good. Yeah, yeah, I'm glad we did this as a follow-up episode, and if we ever get a chance to see Top Gun Maverick, we'll have to do the same thing. But to be fair, we have to do this with Raimi. Yes, we're going to totally piss him off and do it without him. Yeah, oh. <laughs> we'll lock him in the closet. Oh, yeah, we got to do... Oh, Raimi and I have to do another uh, another Mel Brooks, too. Screw that. Um, <laughs> well, the two, if you, two of you can do it over Skype. You go nuts. I'll, I'll do the editing. That's fine. Yeah. Oh, no, we're, we're going we're gonna to wait and hijack your uh, your room again. Oh, very cool. Okay. Thankfully, I don't think he did any other films in the 80s. So, ha! So, no, this is uh, this is really good. I'm glad we did it. Um, especially after saying, yeah, this movie's never going to get made. So, yes, it did get made. And, yes. Yeah. Um,